Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. And if you grabbed one of the hardback Bibles from out front, it's on page 6. Genesis chapter 9. We continue our series in uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, we may be going uh, faster than some would have expected in some ways. Um, but we're now uh, to this covenant, uh, this relationship uh, that God makes with Noah. Genesis chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Uh, it is our practice to stand when we read God's Word. Uh, so if you're able, would you please do that now? And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man his blood shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And you... Be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. And then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray now. And we pray, O Holy Spirit, as the one who uh, inspired these words as Moses wrote them, as the one who has preserved them for us these many thousands of years, that you would now be at work in them, through them, draw us to Christ, conform us more and more into His image, for it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. We are um, coming up on the 98th anniversary, if I've done my math right, 
We're coming up on the 98th anniversary of the Treaty of Versailles, June 28, 1919. It meant the end of World War I. And as any peace treaty, treaty uh, does, it creates these various stipulations and requirements and sets new boundaries and, and reestablished um, new national boundaries. It established demilitarized zones and, and who's going to pay for what, and all the, the reparations that had to be paid after the end of World War I. It was all spelled out in the Treaty of Versailles. In many ways, Genesis 9, a war has just ended. A war of sorts has just reached a conclusion and God has, has pronounced judgment on man for sin and now, here in Genesis 9, signs a peace treaty. It's a, a peace treaty that we read here between God and, and the earth, between God and man. And new things are established and re-established, affirmed and reaffirmed in this peace treaty. First of all, God provides for His people in a broken world. You remember, God's original command, God's original instructions to Adam and Eve, when He formed Adam and Eve and put them in the garden, He told them, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, rule over it, Exercise dominion over the earth. Fill it. Have a bunch of kids. There should be a lot of descendants. And be my vice regents on the earth. That was their command. That was the, the command given by God to Adam and Eve. You might expect that command to change. Having destroyed the earth by a flood because of sin. Remember, it was... Genesis 6-5 that told us that every thought of every person was only evil all the time. And precisely because of that sin, precisely because of the, the extent of sin, God sends the flood to judge the world. You might expect that command to be different now. Well, maybe God's changed that command, but notice He gives exactly the same instructions to Noah and to his family. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Yet, what we notice in this context, sin hasn't changed any. See, you assume that the flood came to destroy man and therefore rid the world of sin. But that's not the case at all. Man is still sinful. In fact, we, we saw this last week. We'll look back again at, at the end of, verse, of chapter 8, verse 21. God says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. That verse should cause us trouble. But wait, 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 wait. The flood just came. I thought that wiped out sin. I thought Noah found favor in the eyes of God and therefore he was good and everybody else was wicked. And so where, how is sin here now? 
Well, that just, just proves to us that Noah wasn't good. He wasn't holy while everyone else was sinful. He too is a sinner because there's only eight people left and it's him and his family and sin still exists. The, the condition of man's heart hasn't changed. We think of the flood as doing something about sin. And yet man's heart is just as it was after the flood as it was before. After the flood, man's heart is just as it was before. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. And, and notice the promise. I will never strike down, verse 21 still, I will never strike down every living creature it's not because they're sinless. It's not because they're righteous. It's not because they're good. It's simply because of His grace. He makes a promise, I'm never going to judge sin in this way again. I'm never going to send a flood to destroy creation again. Even though man is still sinful from his youth. And yet, even in this broken, fallen world, the command remains. We saw it in verse 1. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. We see it again in verse 7. Be fruitful, multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. God commands Noah and his family, fill the earth with my image bearers. Fill the earth with my vice regents. Okay, Yes, they're sinful now. Yes, they're broken now. But it's not that God's image is completely gone. It's just, it's marred. It's affected, to be sure. But it's not completely gone. God provides for His people children. He provides a heritage. He provides offspring for His people. The command, be fruitful and multiply, still stands. But notice, God doesn't only provide offspring. He doesn't only provide children and descendants. He also provides a new and improved menu. Restaurants will advertise when they make major menu changes. Restaurants will advertise when they've added some new things to their menu or they've They've now gone totally gluten-free. Or maybe instead they went the other way and went only gluten-filled. I mean, they, they make a big deal when major changes happen to their menu. That's exactly what God does here. Hey, Noah, you and your family, you now get to be omnivores. Here, let me give to you not just plants but meat. You can now eat steak. You can now eat chicken. You can now eat meat. Let me, let me give for you not just the plants, but also the animals. This new relationship, this peace treaty, this, this new standard between God and man expands to include meat on the menu. Verse 3. 
Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I gave you green plants, now I give you everything. For Noah and his family, the menu expands. The menu grows. Animals are now going to run away from you. Verse 2. You almost have this sense that there was this still this, this relationship between man and animals uh, before the flood. And now there's this new standard, verse 2, the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth. They're going to run away from you. I, I remember hearing one time somebody saying one of the reasons animals always tend to run away from us. You know, you think you go out in your backyard and, and squirrels run away and birds fly off. I remember hearing somebody saying, well, the explanation for that is they know that you have a a complaint against their master. They know that your relationship with their creator is not right. I'm not sure that the problem is for them is our relationship with God. I think our problem, their problem is our relationship with them. They're now added to the menu. There's, there's no indication that man was killing and eating animals prior to chapter 9. And now, not only do you have plants to eat, but every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. There is a restriction, though. God does give one restriction. We've seen this before. God provides lavishly. And when He does provide almost extravagantly lavishly, there tends to be one One restriction, one requirement. Here, you can eat everything that is in this garden except for this one tree. And Adam and Eve said, well, how selfish of God not to let me eat of that tree. He's given you the entire garden. Well, here's the restriction in verse 4. You can eat animals, you can eat um, these, these creatures except not with their lifeblood still in them. You shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Cook it. Drain the blood. Don't, you don't eat raw meat. You don't, you don't dive into a freshly killed animal. Do something with the blood first. I have this vivid memory. One of, one of I shouldn't say one of the coolest memories of college, but it, is, it honestly was one of the coolest memories of college. As I'm riding my bike across campus trying to get to class, there's this horde of people standing in a big giant circle out in front of Johnstone next to Tillman. Uh, for those of you that know where that is. Um, at Clemson. And I was, what are all these people doing standing there? There's a hawk sitting on the ground eating a squirrel. He caught this squirrel, tackled it, you know, dragged it to the ground, and he's just sitting right there in front of all these people eating this. He, he tore a hole in his belly and just reached in and kept pulling out everything he wanted to eat. And when he was done, he flew off. Part of what God says here in verse 4 is that that's not the way we eat animals. You don't, you don't slit its throat and then immediately dive in. When you see that in movies, you immediately think there's something wrong with that person. 
drain the blood, kill, cook it, do something with the blood in it. That's how animals eat animals. It's not how man eat, eats animals. Blood represents life. And so there's this restriction. They must be truly, surely, certainly dead before we eat them. God provides for His people in a broken world. But notice also God protects His people in a broken world. The animals run from man. There's this fear of man on... The animals have this newfound fear, this dread of you upon every beast. We are now able to kill them. They run from us. But notice the reverse is not true. Did you notice that? God protects man's life. Look at verse 5. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. For your lifeblood, every beast, even from the beast, even from animals, I will require it. And from man, I will require it. If a beast kills you, I will require a reckoning from him. If another man kills you, I will require a reckoning from him is the, the language of verse 5. There's this protection for mankind. The, the value of man is maintained in this peace treaty. Well, there's a reason for that. And we're given the reason in verse 6. Because God made man in His own image. Yes, Sin is real. Yes, we're sinful. Even from our youth, our intentions, our thoughts, our hearts, yes, we are sinners in, in need of cleansing. Of, of That has to be dealt with in some way, shape, or form. But the image of God is still there. I used the illustration before of looking at yourself in the mirror. And when you see yourself in the mirror, you see a pretty good reflection of yourself. It's not you, but it is a really, really good representation of you and, and image of you. It is your image. If you were to, to punch that mirror... Okay, somebody complained last time about the bloody knuckles you'd have from that. If you hit that mirror with a hammer and, and some of the glass may fall out, it's spider webs you can still see yourself, but you're going to have a little bit more difficult time putting on your makeup. You're going to have to sort of bob and weave a little to get around the shards of glass to do one eye and then move again to do the other. It's, the image is there, but it's a marred image. Man is created in God's image, verse 6. Man bears God's image. That's not said of any other creature. No other creature is made in God's image and it's precisely because we represent Him on the earth that whether an animal or a human murders us, their life will be demanded. Oh, the lengths we go to to save the spotted owl. Oh, the money we'll spend to save some random... Um, mouse that, that we've just discovered 
is an endangered species. And the freedom with which abortion is available today. I remember watching this show. As kids and I, the kids and I were watching a show one time years ago. A ship that sailed around Antarctica. And its only purpose was to ram whaling ships. They'd pull up to them, they'd bump into them, they'd throw stink bombs, they'd do anything they could. Now, I'm not saying we should go just kill all the whales. I'm not saying we shouldn't care about spotted owls and, and animals. I, don't hear that. Don't go too far. But we will spend countless dollars and hours protecting animals, and abortion is far too easily available. Man bears God's image not animals. We should have the protections turned around the other way. Notice, this is the grounds for capital punishment. This is, this is why we have capital punishment, why we have lethal injection and, and the electric chair. Because whoever sheds the blood of man has sacrificed, whoever murders a human, whoever actually takes out vengeance against God by killing his image bearer, gives up his rights to his own life. And therefore, by man, that murderer's blood should be shed. Moses is writing these first five books. He's writing for the people of Israel, probably, perhaps somewhere between Egypt and the Promised Land. Perhaps it's during that wilderness wandering that he... Uh, that he writes these books. These laws are, are etched in stone for them. Uh, these, these laws are clearly given to them. You can read through Leviticus and see these same laws continued in Moses' day. And they're carried out in ours as well. We put murderers to death because they have lashed out against God's image. God protects His people in a broken world. But notice finally, God also makes peace with His people in a broken world. He's, he's established these new relationships between man and the animals, between man and creation, and now God turns His attention to the relationship between man and God. And He enters into a covenant with Noah and his family. If you've, if you've read the children's catechism, a covenant, according to the children's catechism, a covenant is agreement between two or more persons. That's sort of true. But notice as you read through, through verses 8 through 17, all the things that God does compared to all the things that Noah does. Just glance through the verses for just a second. Um, God establishes verse 9. Uh, he establishes verse 11. Uh, God speaks in verse 12. God sets His bow in the cloud, verse 13. God brings clouds, verse 14. God remembers, verse 15. And on and on it goes. Noah 
does nothing. Noah doesn't do or say anything in this passage. God steps into this covenant relationship. It's sort of an agreement between two or more persons, but Noah didn't even participate. Noah didn't say, well, yes, but. It's all a a unilateral covenant of grace. He provides, He protects, and ultimately God makes peace with His people in a broken world. You know, Moses is writing to these Israelites. I don't know how many people were in Israel at the time of the at the time of, of the Passover, at the time they left Egypt and and crossed over and headed towards the promised land. How many thousands, how many hundreds of thousands, how many millions of people were in that mass? It doesn't really matter. What they know is that God's already making these things happen. Because chapter 9 begins with eight people. Noah, Mrs. Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Mrs. Shem, Mrs. Ham, and Mrs. Japheth. Eight people are on the earth when Genesis 9 begins. But Moses' audience is millions. Be fruitful and multiply. God's bringing about His promises. Those things He's promised to do, He has already made happen. They get to look back on their history and say, Oh look, look what God has done for us. He's provided for us. There are descendants. Uh, Noah and his family did multiply and increase greatly on the earth. God is fulfilling His promise. Which means that when He promises never to destroy the earth by a flood... They have reason to believe. God is fulfilling His promises. His other promises, I should trust that He's not going to destroy the earth by a flood again. Notice the covenant sign that God gives. It's a bow. He sets a bow in His clouds. Some of your versions may say rainbow. They're the same word in Hebrew. So you kind of have to deal with that. When a war is over, when the war is ended, the battle's done. You've gone to war perhaps with a bow and arrow. You've now gone home because the war is over. What do you do with your bow? You hang it on the wall. I mean, you, you, you hang it up on a wall and, and, and you're saying, I don't need this anymore. I don't, I'm not using it as a weapon of war Anymore, And in a sense, we look at the clouds in the rain and we, we see this rainbow, this bow in the sky. And we are reminded, oh, that that's right, God's not going to use that as a weapon of war against us anymore. God's not going to use that water, that flood, as a weapon of war against us anymore. He's hung up His bow. But notice something else about the bow. Which way is it facing? If that bow were to launch an arrow, who would it hit? God says to His people, I will stake my very existence on fulfilling my covenant promises. If I fail to do what I've promised to do, then may I die. Just 
I don't. Ex- I will cease to exist. It's he's guaranteeing his promise when he sets that bow in the sky. But notice something else. For whom is that covenant sign a reminder? It's not for us. He doesn't say when you see the bow in the sky, you will remember that I'm not going to destroy the earth anymore. He says when I send clouds and when I send rain, much like we seem to have today, I will see my bow and I will remember that sign He places for His own good, His own memory. Now you know God doesn't forget. You know good and well that God didn't, oh, that's right, I forgot I wasn't going to do this. I better stop the rain real quick. Oh man, I, I completely forgot that I wasn't going to destroy the earth by a flood, so, so uh, I better move these clouds so it's not going to flood too much. He doesn't forget. But every time God remembers in Scripture... Like the very next scene, he acts. If God remembers, keep reading. Because he's about to act. God provides for his people. He protects his people. He even brings peace with his people in this new covenant relationship. This new treaty that he establishes with Noah and his descendants. But we get to verse 17 and there's still a problem. Not every problem of the first nine chapters of Genesis has been dealt with either in the flood or in this peace treaty. There's still a problem that has yet to be solved when we get to the end of verse 17 of chapter 9. Sin is still real, sin still exists. Sin hasn't been wiped away. Sin hasn't been solved. That problem hasn't been fixed yet. And what we find is that this is all a picture of the way God provides for and protects and brings peace, even not just with His people in a broken world, but with the brokenness, the brokenness itself. Ultimately, God sends His Son. God sends Christ to be that ark. And if you're in the ark, you're delivered from the flood. If you're in Christ, you're delivered from that penalty of sin, the, the, the effects of sin, the, the relational problem between God and man is solved not in a flood, but in Christ. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. God has made Christ to be sin who because He didn't know sin. He wasn't a sinner. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of Christ. Christ comes to shed His blood to give peace between God and man. To give peace between man and and man. Jesus comes to shed His blood, to solve that which the flood couldn't solve, to deliver us from that which the ark couldn't deliver us. 
to do that which even the rainbow cannot do. God promises to Noah here in this passage, I will stay my hand. I will withhold judgment. I will stay the execution until I can execute the one who will take your place, who will bear the punishment for our sin. And it's in Christ that God promises to us He's holding off His wrath because He's already poured it out on His Son, Jesus Christ. That's our hope. That's our confidence. That doesn't eliminate sin from us, but it does deliver us from the penalty of sin. And we're thankful too that He's at work in us, delivering us more and more from the power of sin. And we long for the day when finally, completely, He comes back and we're freed from the very presence of sin. That's the peace treaty that God has signed with us in the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank You that You have stooped to us in Christ. That You've come to us and entered into a peace treaty with us. You even, Lord Jesus, You kept our end of the treaty. You were obedient to the Father. You suffered the pain and shame of Death on the cross for sin that you didn't commit, but that we are guilty of. Father, we thank you for that peace treaty. And we pray that you would be at work in us. Strengthen and encourage our faith in Christ. That we might grow more and more confident in the reality that we are delivered from the penalty of sin. That we might get more and more glimpses that You are freeing us from the power of sin. That we might anticipate the day when we're delivered from the presence of sin. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen.